but we, we are getting in the helicopter again. Um, that's because with Patrick being away, I had to sort of pull this forward a couple of weeks. But I actually find myself in a, in a really unusual situation this time because what I was scheduled to be doing was both the letter of James and the first letter of Peter. But hopefully, when I say that, you go, ah, oh, we've actually had sessions over the last few months. Only in November, Alan Wilson had three Sunday mornings with us in First Peter and was, was, was excellent. And just before that, Nigel did, was it even seven studies on James? Eight. Um, so we've actually done both of these, but because Nigel's was further back, I thought I would take James this morning and give us that sort of flyover. I will, at the end of all this, I will do all of the books with the title and the key verse, but we're going to do James today. And uh, Warren Wearsby very wisely has chosen as his little title for James to sum up the theme of the letter. He's called it Be Mature. And uh, I'm going to give you a key verse, which is James chapter 1, verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Some of the older versions may say, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be perfect. And it's this idea of fully complete. And you get that again, actually, in James chapter 3, verse 2, when it's talking about control of the tongue. It says that the person who can manage to control their tongue is perfect. That is, they're complete. They're, they're fully mature. So James is a letter all about Christian maturity. What it looks like and how it comes about. For this reason, James is often referred to as the most practical of all the letters in the New Testament. Sometimes it's, it's called the New Testament equivalent of the book of, he uh, the book of Proverbs. Because what you have is in James, you've got this very description of what a life actually looks like that has taken on board the wisdom of God. I love how uh, Prof Gooding describes the way that the letter of James benefits us as we come to study it. And I think this is just worth uh, reading. The study of James, it will make our Christianity richer and deeper, less superficial and more sincere, more attractive and alive and vibrant, more pleasing to the Lord, and more effective in our testimony to the world. So the book of James has a lot to offer us. Another thing uh, that it's well known for um, particularly among people who teach the Bible, is its apparent lack of structure and thought flow. It does not read like one of John's letters or Paul's letters or Peter's letters. James just appears to bounce from one subject to the next 
And he doesn't seem to be too concerned about the connections between the blocks of material. If you start reading the letter, you'll see that. And I, well, that's probably part of how the letter was uh, designed to be used. I think a helpful way to look at the letter is to see it as a sort of compendium or a series of snapshots of what Christian maturity looks like, what it involves, how it is achieved. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to approach the letter in that way, and I'm going to identify eight features or eight marks of what a mature Christian life looks like, according to James. I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time on each of them, but what I want to do, and all these sort of flyover studies, what I'm hoping you'll do is you'll say, I'm going to take a read through that again, and hopefully some of these things will stick. I've also given each of the eight marks uh, a three-word title in the attempt to make it a little bit easier to remember. So, Christian maturity comes through and is measured by, number one, perseverance under trial. This is a very major theme in James, which is addressed both at the start of the letter and again at the end of the letter, in chapter 5, where the believers are facing exploitation at the hands of the rich and the powerful. And I want to read the, the verses again. It includes the key verses, well. Chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And as everywhere else in the New Testament, James teaches that as believers, we should rejoice in our trials and sufferings, not at our trials and sufferings. Our sufferings are not the source of our joy. We're not masochists in that way. They're, but they are the God-ordained context in which our Christian joy is to be experienced. James teaches that as believers find themselves in challenging and difficult situations that they would never choose for themselves, they can know that God is using these trials to train them in faithful perseverance so that they can develop true Christian character. And that perspective on our trials actually transforms the experience of suffering from the inside. It does not remove our suffering, but it redeems it. It makes it purposeful. And to the degree that we respond to it appropriately in faith, it makes our sufferings profitable for us. They actually work for our good in that sense. Now, James is a realist, 
And he knows that that is never going to be our natural response to adversity. This is a perspective that is gained through turning to God in our suffering, in our confusion, in all the disorientation that comes with it. And that is why James immediately follows what he says about count it all joy when you're going into trials because they're going to develop perseverance, real character in you. He then says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. We receive wisdom. Our perspective on it is transformed. So James confronts us with the truth that if we really want to grow up as Christians, to become people of substance and weight, then we must take the adversity module in God's curriculum for our development. An untested faith is an immature faith. And James wants us to leave that behind. I find it so ironic. I prepared this several weeks ago. On Wednesday night, we had Sharon Kelly with us. One of the most amazing meetings I've been at in my life, to see a girl who has the T-shirt. True Christian substance, weight, and maturity through walking with God through the most adverse of circumstances. That's what James wants for us. We do not need to run from suffering because God uses it. He redeems it. Not a popular message today where God is perceived always as the get me out of jail free card. Nope, not if we want to mature. So point number one, the first mark of Christian maturity, the way it comes, is perseverance under trial. Number two, application of Scripture. Uh, some of James's best-known verses come in chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. I'm going to read quite a few sections quite quickly this morning. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. And of course, James follows this in chapter 2 with talking about, you know, if you've got a dead faith, a faith that doesn't produce works, it's utterly useless. Faith that produces works. Bible knowledge, folks, knowledge of the truth, knowledge of God's word is never an end in itself. It must always be responded to, applied to life. Transformation is always the true goal of interaction with Scripture. It's not about becoming Bible smart, you know, that you can answer the, the questions about what happened then and all that stuff. It's not about that. In fact, there's nothing more ugly 
than someone who seems to know a lot of Scripture and their character remains untouched. And I think it's good to reflect, pun intended, on the image that James uses for the Word of God. Or for, notice his description of the Bible, the perfect law that gives freedom. Um, It's this idea of God's Word being a mirror. And I used to think of that in a sort of what I would call a purely negative sense. You know, when you as a believer come and you look into the mirror of God's Word, then it's going to highlight all the sort of dirt and deformity in your life. And don't misunderstand me. Scripture will do that, and it will do that at a very profound level. But when believers look into the Scriptures and see themselves as they truly are in Christ, what looks back at them is not just this depressing picture of deformity and defilement. We see ourselves as new creations in Jesus Christ. And that's what the Scriptures do. The Scriptures call us to live in the good of what God has done for us, the decisive change that he's made in us, the work of transformation that has begun. That's what looking into the perfect law of liberty does for us. Yes, finger our sin that we must deal with, but show us what we truly are and to live in light of it. James wants us to receive God's word, to believe what it says and to act on it. He wants us to trust its promises and obey its commands. James wants the word of God to actually shape the people that we are. There's nothing more beautiful than seeing a Christian who's just being formed by the Word of God. It gives shape to their lives and what they are. And when other people look at them, they see God's Word in the flesh in that sense. So perseverance under trial, application of Scripture. Here's a third mark of Christian maturity, an indicator of it, and it can be very exposing. Refusal to discriminate. I'm going to read some verses quickly. I'll read the first five verses of chapter 2, though I recommend you read to verse 9. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? Here's the principle at work, says James. If we truly see Jesus for who he is, he is the Lord of glory or our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If we get him in his place, There's a plug. If we get him in his place, 
then we will be positioned to relate to all other people for who they truly are. And distinctions in respect of worldly status and wealth and position are to count for nothing within the community of God's people and our interactions with those beyond. Favoritism towards and special treatment of the rich and the powerful is not only a direct violation of God's law, as James goes on to say, it is a blatant indicator of Christian immaturity. Not only is our Lord unimpressed by worldly riches, but he has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. And to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. So do you know what this means? Christian maturity always goes hand in hand with a deep commitment to those who lack this world's riches. To those who are marginalized, forgotten, despised. To widows and orphans to street children, to lepers, to prisoners, to refugees, to those who don't have enough to eat, who can't afford to educate their children, who are imprisoned by poverty and who have no prospects. So maybe we should draw a circle around ourselves and ask ourselves this. Are we content to surround ourselves with people like ourselves, who have more than enough of this world's material resources and who fit in well with our comfortable and insulated lives. Could it be that we're actually guilty of favoring the rich and discriminating against the poor by just going with the flow of middle-class Christianity? If so, it says something about our Christian maturity and how much we have failed to imitate our glorious Lord Jesus Christ who was always found at the margins of society. Always. Never with the comfy establishment. A fourth mark of Christian maturity is control of speech. It's maybe not coincidental, but right in the middle, at the very heart of James's description of Christian maturity, comes a lengthy section on the destructive power of our tongues. I'm just going to read, I recommend you read the first 12 verses of James 3. I'm just going to read from verse 9. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. It's just so, such a graphic chapter, well worth reading. Our tongue is like the bit in a horse's mouth. It's like the rudder of a ship. It's a fire starter. 
says James. It's a poison injector. Master your tongue, says James, and you really will be mature, complete, because no man can manage it. Verse 2. So what does it say about us? When we use our tongues to insult, to hurt, to misrepresent, to gossip about others, when our speech is weaponized to put others down, what does it say about us when we use our tongues to promote ourselves or we use them to lie, to protect ourselves? According to James, it exposes a lack of maturity in our relationship with the Lord. It shows that we're not drawing from the fresh living springs of fellowship with him, but we're still drawing from the bitter salt waters of our own sinful nature. May we know God's help to control this little member and to use our tongues to build up, not to tear down, to bring unity, not division, to bless and not to curse. Fifth mark of maturity, acquisition of wisdom. Chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. You know, everyone agrees that wisdom is a reliable gauge of maturity. Growing old and growing up are not the same thing. You can have been on the road for a long time as a Christian and have failed to make meaningful progress in development. And what it comes down to, says James, is whether we have actually received the wisdom that is on offer to us. A wisdom that is heavenly in origin, that comes from above. And it's a wisdom that leads to one overriding quality in our lives. And that is, verse 13, humility. Humility before God and humility before other people. So what characterizes the mature believer who receives this heavenly wisdom? And what a life James describes Here's his description. It's a good life. It's a productive life, verse 13. It's a life that's marked by purity, peaceableness, consideration, submission, mercy, fruitfulness, impartiality, sincerity, verse 17. And it's a life that promotes righteousness in the world. 
verse 18. Now, there is another form of wisdom that's available to us. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And where it controls and shapes a life, it produces the very opposite of what James has just itemized. How wise have we become as Christians? Not one of us here needs to answer that question with our lips. James says our lives already answer it for us. Sixth mark of maturity. Rejection of worldliness. James 4 verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God? Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Or the spirit he caused to dwell in us envies intensely for us? How do you spot a mature Christian? Answer, according to James, they're not at home in this world. They are friends with God and not with the world. They do not belong to the spirit of the age, but instead to the indwelling, jealous spirit of God who must have our affection for God. A mature Christian is someone who cannot go along with the desires and values and attitudes and behaviors of a world system that rejects God and that promotes the devil's lie that life is best lived without God. A mature Christian is someone who is continually at war in this life, who cannot reach an accommodation with the way things are, but who submits to God and resists the devil and his schemes. James would have us revisit the truth That to be the friend of God is to be set on a collision course with how this world operates. And you see if this idea, this language of spiritual conflict seems remote and just a bit over the top, then maybe we should ask ourselves whose friend we really are. You know, is our life one where we are consciously swimming upstream or one that just goes with the flow, because there ain't no conflict in a life that just goes with the world's flow. Seventh mark of maturity, submission to sovereignty. Chapter 4, verse 13. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. I remember quite a few years ago being in a, a primary school and it was a whole school assembly. And he held up the word, the two little letters, DV. 
And he said to the entire school, to any of the children, have you ever seen that before? Does anyone know what it means? Now, I know kids maybe could be shy, but I'm not sure that was the answer. Not a single child knew what DV meant. And the reason for that, by the way, guys, is because as Christians, we've stopped talking like this. Despite the fact it is a direct command in the Bible, we will say, and you know what? Deo valente. God, if God wills, we will do such and such. See, a mature Christian is someone who understands that the next breath that they'll breathe is in the hands of God. Mature Christians understand and freely admit that we are not in ultimate control of our lives. All the plans we make, all of our dreams and hopes and ambitions are subject to the sovereign will of the Lord. And the thing is, because mature Christians live in the reality of God's sovereignty, they don't have to be in control. They don't have to have it all mapped out and they can remain standing when things don't go the way that they had hoped they would. See, belief in God's sovereignty is not some sort of theological abstraction. I know Christians can do that. They spend all the time arguing about it. Just live in light of it would be a lot more useful. It's actually the most practical of doctrines. Mature Christians have learned to trust the hand that takes them through life. And it's a cliche for a reason. We do not know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. That's Christian maturity, living under the sovereignty of God, embracing it. Eighth and finally, earnestness in prayer. And it's a great balancer to what I've just been saying about living, submitting to God's sovereignty. You know, Christians are not Stoics. Just, you know, shrug of the shoulders, well, the, the impersonal workings of faith. No, that's not a Christian. As James teaches in the closing verses, between James chapter 5, verse 13, and the end, he actually mentions prayer seven times. Prayer in the midst of trouble. Prayer for the sick. Believing prayer. Prayer arising out of a life that pursues righteousness, powerful and effective prayer, earnest prayer, prayer that impacts the people around us. James mentions all that in those closing verses. Christians never outgrow prayer. We grow in prayer. And there is no such a thing as a mature Christian. I don't care if they were saved when they were two and they're now 80. There is no mature Christian who is not consistent in and committed to prayer. Why is that so? Because prayer is our continual admission of our dependence on God. And it is his ordained, ordained means of us receiving his strength. No other way. So let me ask you, and I ask myself the same question. How is your prayer life? Dear brother, dear sister, your development in Christ depends upon it, is determined by it, how, how you can honestly answer that question. 
So as we fly over James, I think of the, you know, of it, what is it, Black Mountain there, you know, the, the writing on the side of the, you see it? You know, usually it's something for the Palestinians or something like that there, whenever they put up. But James, as we fly over it, he says, be mature. And that will mean perseverance under trial, application of scripture, refusal to discriminate, control of speech, acquisition of wisdom, rejection of worldliness, submission to sovereignty, and earnestness in prayer. Be mature, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.